Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've always been fascinated by the human voice, which experts say is as unique to each person as their fingerprint. In these podcasts, we celebrate the human voice in all its wonderfully diverse forms, young and old, different accents and cultural contexts. Writers sometimes struggle to find their own voice, but you can kind of tell when someone is speaking from a place of authenticity and integrity. That's when I most love listening to voices. Thank you for listening. For this special episode of the Humankind on Public Radio podcast, we offer these highlights of interesting programs we've presented. Back next week with our regular feed. Welcome to Humankind, a long-running audio series presented by Human Media. I'm David Freudberg. Most of our programs have been produced in association with WGBH in Boston and heard on NPR stations around the United States, as well as the NPR channel of Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Selected episodes have also been broadcast on the BBC in Britain, the CBC in Canada, and the ABC in Australia. Hundreds of our stories have been acquired by the Library of Congress based in Washington, D.C. Humankind aims to serve the growing audience of people who seek a positive alternative to media negativity and exploitation. We attempt to shed light on solutions, not just problems. And we strive to nurture curiosity that's enriched by wisdom, to address and call forth the highest part of people. The purpose is to help build a more cohesive sense of community for us all. Our vision of community is based on personal ideals such as compassion, service, generosity, equality, nonviolence, and civility. In our stories, you'll hear how people attempt, sometimes surmounting great difficulties, to live by those values. Here's a sample of the ideas and inspiration we explore on Humankind. We start with the life of perhaps the world's most famous person with disabilities, Helen Keller. The association that I enjoyed with her as a professional colleague and a personal friend has changed, I think, everything that I do. Most of the time, people with healthy eyes and ears take for granted the wondrous gift of human sight and hearing. We scarcely pause to marvel at the miracle of just being able to look out on the landscape before us and listen to the panorama of sounds around us. be like as a child to be stricken totally blind and deaf.
summertime 1886. A locomotive winds through the steamy American South bound for Baltimore, Maryland. Arthur Keller, a newspaper publisher and formerly a Confederate captain, boarded with his family at Tuscumbia, their hometown in rural northern Alabama. Helen was age six and would recall the journey years later in her autobiography. I made friends with many people on the train. My aunt made me a big doll out of towels. It was the most comical, shapeless thing, this improvised doll, with no nose, mouth, ears, or eyes. Nothing that even the imagination of a child could convert into a face. Curiously enough, the absence of eyes struck me more than all the other defects put together. I tumbled off the seat and searched under it until I found my aunt's cape, which was trimmed with large beads. I pulled two beads off and indicated to her that I wanted her to sew them on my doll. The Kellers have come north seeking advice on Helen's condition. They are referred to Dr. Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone and also an educator of the deaf who takes an interest in the child's unusual case. Although she has the potential to be trained, Helen is in a crude state, with no language, no means of signaling her needs except for a few simple hand gestures she has contrived. The desire to express myself grew. The few signs I used became less and less adequate, and my failures to make myself understood were invariably followed by outbursts of passion. Imagine being cut off all communications suddenly after having been... You know, a bright child. Marguerite Levine, a French woman, was longtime director of the Helen Keller Archives in New York. She was a very lovable child, and all at once she had no way of communicating, no way of expressing. At the same time, she was being bombarded by all kinds of feelings and sensations for which she could not get an explanation. It must have been the most, most state of deepest, deepest despair that any human being can achieve at any age. Then one day, an experience would change Helen's life, from her autobiography. We walked down the path to the well house, attracted by the fragrance of the honeysuckle with which it was covered. Someone was drawing water, and my teacher placed my hand under the spout. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word water, first slowly, then rapidly. Suddenly, I felt a misty consciousness as of something forgotten, a thrill of returned thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful cool something that was flowing over my hand, that living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, set it free. There were barriers still, it is true, but barriers that could in time be swept away. Now, here are the sensitive reflections of author and meditation practitioner Jack Cornfield. Uh, let me tell you a story. Um, one of my close friends and teachers was a man named Mahagosananda, who was the Gandhi figure of Cambodia. And we lived in forest monasteries together during the Cambodian genocide, where two million people were killed 
Um, the killing fields. The killing fields. And when that happened, he rushed to, to the refugee camps as people poured out of Cambodia to set up temples for those whose villages had been destroyed and temples burned and lives destroyed. Um, and 19 members, all the members of his family had been killed and his temple burned. And I went to help him. And in these big camps, Sakyao and Kaui Dung, um, hundreds of thousands of refugees, he asked the UN if he could set up a temple in the middle since people had been Buddhist. But I am walking deep valleys, trying to get home. was a platform with a tin roof made in the middle with a Buddha image that was given by a nearby Thai temple. And the day he was going to open it and we were to ring this big gong around the camp, the underground Khmer Rouge, which was still there, said if anyone goes to this temple, when they get back they would be killed. So we didn't know if anyone would come. Rang the gong around the dry perimeter of this huge refugee, dusty refugee camp, and 25,000 people poured into the square. And Mahagosananda sat in front of them with all these people seated who had the trauma in their eyes of maybe one uncle and two nieces that was all the left of their family or you know, a mother and only one of her three surviving children. The trauma in their eyes. You could see it in their faces, uh, as you have if you live in an area where people have been through such terrors. And I thought, what can he possibly say to them? And he looked out across this sea of faces and broken hearts and put his hands together and began to chant in Sanskrit and in Cambodian sounds that they hadn't heard for years since their temples were burned. This beautiful verse that begins the Dhammapada, the Buddhist teachings, that goes, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And he chanted it over and over, and pretty soon 25,000 people were chanting with him, and their eyes were filled with tears. And I realized that he was offering them a truth that was even bigger than their sorrows, even bigger than their suffering. He was saying, yes, there is suffering in this world, sometimes immense suffering, but it never ends with more hatred. It only ends with love. And this is the core teaching of, of Buddhism for thousands of years, and it really inspires people in their hearts all around the world. And the truth can't really be altered even by someone's hatred or intimidation. Sooner or later, the truth will reemerge even if it's been covered over temporarily. And this is trustworthy as the poet Pablo Neruda writes, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. And there's something in the human heart that re wants to reawaken to well-being and love no matter what 
we have been through. From life lessons in Cambodia to hard-earned wisdom learned at a prison in New Jersey, here's Reuben Hurricane Carter, who was convicted of a terrible crime he did not commit, then later set free by a federal judge. Reuben was portrayed by Denzel Washington in the film The Hurricane. For the first 10 years of my imprisonment, I hated everything that moved. I hated everything and everybody. And finally, it began to manifest itself on me when I saw myself in the mirror one day. I said, oh, my God, that can't be me. I mean, I was full of hate, and that hate was all over my face, was in my eyes, in my mouth, in my teeth, the way I walked. So I knew then, I said, hmm, hatred and bitterness only consumes the vessel that contains it. So if there's any change at all, I've got to change. This prison is not going to change. This prison is a prison is a prison, and it's not going to change. Was it painful to accept that the conditions that confined you would not change, that you were stuck there? No, I knew what prison was, because I've been in prison all my life. So I knew what prison was. I knew I was in a prison. And, and, and it's interesting you should say that, Dave, because only when you know you're in prison can you ever seek to get out of that prison. If you don't know you're in prison, why would you want to escape prison if you don't know it? And that is our problem here on this level of unconscious human insanity. We don't realize that it is a prison, and therefore we can't escape it. So what insight allowed you to reach the recognition that you were in prison? When I saw that monster... In the mirror? In the mirror. I knew that I was not only in a physical prison, but I was also in an emotional prison. I was also in a psychological prison. I was also in prison. I even imprisoned myself within the prison. And I knew that something's got to change here because that's not me. So the bars of your self-constructed prison were hatred? Hatred, bitterness, being a victim. I was a victim, you know. They did this to me. They did this to me, and that just fueled my hatred. Having spent nearly two decades in jail after being wrongly convicted of homicide, Reuben Carter had ample time to contemplate mistakes, made by society and by himself. While behind bars, he read books of philosophy, thirsting for deep comprehension of what had gone wrong in his life and what it all means. Since leaving jail in 1985 and moving to Toronto, Canada, he has devoted his time to organizing and advocating for other prisoners he believes were falsely accused and unjustly incarcerated. And as we'll hear, he developed a profoundly spiritual worldview that may seem surprising. You said our society is filled with people who are sleepwalking. What do you mean by that? Well, let's look at it this way, David. We look around us today, and for the whole of human history on this earth, we look at ourselves, and we see ourselves hating other people because of things like religion and politics, 
We see ourselves robbing each other, raping each other, being violent towards each other. We see that. We see children not being able to, to eat or, or able to go to school or, or human beings living on the streets, not having houses or sustenance on this beautiful planet Earth, which is nothing but a great big smorgasbord, where anything that you can possibly want or need is right here, right now. And, 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 and we don't see those things, you know? And so we look at other people not as our brothers and sisters, not even as our cousins, not even as other human beings, but we look at other people in the light of, of religion. I'm a Muslim, you're a Christian. For generations, Muslims and Christians have always fought, so we fight too. We fight too just because everybody else does it. That's what everybody do. You know, I'm Jewish, and therefore uh, my people have been uh, desecrated all their life, wherever they go, therefore I'm going to be Jewish. That's it, you know. Or, or I'm black, you know. Uh, uh, there's been 400 years of slavery where 175 million Africans were transported from Africa all over the Western world, you know. We look at ourselves through these kind of, through these kind of eyes, and then we don't see ourselves. Because we are all, every one of us on this planet is nothing more or less than a flower from the sun. A seed planted in organic life on earth with the ability to, be, to do better, to be more beautiful, to have more wisdom than anything that anybody can possibly imagine. We don't see ourselves as that. We don't know ourselves. That's the reason why even in the Bible, in biblical days, it says the most important thing about that is know thyself. Because if you know thyself, you know everything else that's going on in the universe. Now the story of Crystal Presley, a Georgia educator and author, whose father suffered post-traumatic stress resulting from his military service in Vietnam. He was so sound sensitive that if I dropped a plate, a spoon, if a car was just merely riding by and if it backfired, my dad would go into war mode. He would hit the floor. He would come after me. You never really knew what he was going to do. Come after you? He would come after me, yeah. There were several times when, and you know, he never physically hurt me, but I was always afraid that he was going to. If I dropped a glass, for example, there was one occasion when he actually came after me. And so I ran into my bedroom. He was chasing me. And I locked myself in my room and I pushed all the furniture against the door and he was beating on the door with his fist yelling for him, for for me to open the door and let him in. And I remember hiding from him in my closet. At that point, how old were you, Crystal? Seven. So that's got to be an absolutely terrifying experience for a seven-year-old. It was, and he was very often suicidal too. And so he would take his gun and announce that he was going to the river to kill himself. This would happen two or three times a week sometimes. And uh, that was also one of the after effects of PTSD. He just felt like he just could not handle life in general. When I was a young man, I was sent to a far off country to fight 
or I still don't understand that I was proud to go to serve for my country in the place they call South Vietnam. Delmer Presley singing a song he wrote shortly after his tour in Southeast Asia as a U.S. soldier in the 1960s. The after effects he suffered were in turn experienced by his daughter Crystal, known as second generation post-traumatic stress. Now in her 30s, Crystal became an English teacher and today supports and trains new teachers in the Atlanta public schools. I had so many questions about myself really back then about what had happened to me, what had happened to my family. And in order to fill in those pieces, I needed to talk to him. You had been estranged from your dad for uh, many years. For 13 years, we'd barely spoken at all. From the moment I left that house, I'd cut him off. That must have been painful for you. It was, and I know that it was very painful for him as well. I just didn't know how to deal with all the things that were happening back then, and I really blamed him for a lot of my suffering. And so I felt like the best thing I could do when I was 18 is just start a completely new life without him. And I was able to see my dad as a scared kid, as somebody who whose life was completely changed by an experience that he had no control over, and somebody who came back, a very broken person, and was never truly able to reintegrate himself back into society. And there were so many questions that my father was able to answer. I asked my dad directly, why were you hiding from my mom and me so often? Did you hate us? Because I always thought that he did. And he told me that that absolutely wasn't the case, that My mom and I were his heart and his soul. We were the most important thing in his world. And he knew that he was unpredictable. He knew that he was moody. He knew that anything could set him off. And he was actually hiding away from us so much because he was trying to protect us from him. He was afraid of what his own uncontrollable emotions might lead to. Right. And when he said those words, that changed everything for me. I was able to see my childhood in a very different context just really understanding things from his perspective. We turn to the recollections of K. Ganeshan, a physician from Sri Lanka near India, and others who were uplifted by their profound encounters in Philadelphia with the late Sufi teacher Bawa Muhayadeen. Being a doctor, I, when I met Bawa, I would go and ask him about certain medical problems where I was where, say, a patient was very ill after my, after I performed an operation. <clears throat> and then um, he would explain, he would say, well, you see, when you're a doctor, say, you do an operation and you stitch the wound up, and the wound heals perfectly, and everybody says you're a good surgeon. But have you ever thought of what happens in that wound? You as a surgeon, you cut the wound, you, you really make the wound. Then you stitch it back, and when you stitch it back, what are you doing? What have you achieved? You have brought the ends of the wound together. You have placed the two ends together. But how does it really get pasted? 
one end of the wound has to send blood vessels and uh, skin and various things through to the other one and those two have to unite. You are not doing that, are you? He asked. Are you making that skin join together? Are you making the tissue join together? She says, no, that is God. It's God that's doing the uniting. All that you are doing is to give that wound the best chances for it to unite, giving the, getting things together, placing it in apposition. So he says, that is, that is your role in life. You are only an instrument in the hands of God. As an instrument, you give, you do whatever you can to give those things a chance, the best chance for God's work to be done. And that is how a doctor has to work. So when you do an operation and it heals well, it doesn't mean that you have done that. God has done it. God has healed it well. And if you realize that, then you will know that when you do an operation and a patient dies, you didn't kill that patient. It wasn't because of your uh, fault. That person must have been uh, at a stage when God wanted them back. And so God used you as an instrument at that time. The operation had to be done. That patient had to go to an operation. That patient had to die. You were the instrument in getting those things done um, as God willed it. So if you can remember that, uh, that he is the one, he is the healer, he is the doctor, and you are only an instrument, then you, you wouldn't be worried by the bad results. But of course, you should not be elated by the good results either because you're not the doer. How did you feel when he explained it that way? It took some of the, the air out of me, out of my balloon, because I was, like everybody else, thought I was a great surgeon and a great gynecologist. But more than that, I think it was a great relief to hear how we could accept the things that went wrong. Because uh, the things that go wrong are the ones that shine most in one's life. Not only for us, people talk about it more too, and that hurts. So it was a great relief to know how to accept that when it happened. One could never explain to another human being that um, inner monastic life, where you're seemingly doing everything that you've done every other day, you go food shopping and you know do things for your children and so forth, but every quiet moment, even when you're standing in the, the line at the supermarket, is given to a pondering over and over again, Bauer will say, analyze it and understand it. Look at it, analyze it and understand it. Very few people want to do that though. Most people want to be spoon-fed. We have everything in a package in America and they think that you can package God too. And that's a sadness. It'll never happen that way. Not understanding him, he has existed since eternity. God who will exist eternally as light within light, as one as grace, as a treasure. Love is one with the truth. 
one within one. And we close on my visit to a most unusual summer camp that has drawn international attention. Seeds of Peace Summer Camp stretches out along a sparkling lake in the hushed woods of Maine about an hour outside Portland. But to the 300 adolescent campers here, it feels more like an island, a sanctuary where they can temporarily forget the fears and worries and strife they have always known and for once just be teenagers together. With 45 points, second prize is group three. And with, and with 49 points, first prize is group four. Back home in the Middle East, their parents sit on opposing sides of a bitter age-old divide. But the Arab and Israeli campers seated on the floor of a big wooden hall after tonight's treasure hunt are clustered in entirely integrated teams. To foster an atmosphere of togetherness, they all wear identical bright green t-shirts. They're asked to speak only one language, English. They sleep and shower in the same bunks and eat at the same tables. And for a few dreamlike weeks, the rigid code they have grown up with is suspended. Their notoriously sharp differences begin to fade away. It's going to sound very simple, but they learn how to listen to another person complete their sentence, even if the sentence itself is hurtful, even if they don't agree at all with what the person is saying. Bobby Gottschalk is executive vice president of the camp. They learn to listen, to hear what the person is trying to tell the other person about their needs and their fears. Um, and their beliefs. Usually, when people enter such a uh, conversation, they try to win. They try to be the one that got the better of the other one. But we, our aim is to change the objective to really understanding the other person as if they are the other person, as if they could, could just step right into that person's life and know exactly how that person feels. Time for recreation allows campers to break up the intensity of formal dialogue sessions. The same kids who argue politics in the morning listen to music together and play each other at ping pong in the afternoon. Arab and Israeli boys, breathing in the sweet fragrance of pine needles, stroll arm-in-arm arm down a dirt lane that cuts through the camp. Simple acts of friendship are the way to plant seeds of peace. Was it surprising to you that you could have fun with Israelis? Uh, yeah, because I never looked at Israelis, you know, to, as friends. I, uh, from my life, from my suffer, like, uh, I, I always looked as at Israelis, as you know, uh, the, these can, these are people who who will never love Arabs or who will never be kind to Palestinians. Uh, when I came here, I saw that there are people who would like to make peace, who would like to, you know, to to know something about myself. And uh, uh, we knew that we shared a lot of things, and 
I don't know. We we uh, we found our way, you know, to to, to form friendships. Uh, when I when I first came back from Seeds of Peace in '95, uh, most of my friends didn't believe me that there are so many beautiful Arab girls. But I went back home and I showed them picture, and now they're all much more interested in peace. <laughs> you can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.